Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we finally have one of the promised interviews. In fact, we've got a lot of them in the hopper coming up, so there's, there's going to be a lot of interviews. Uh, there's still news going on, though, too, so uh, expect to have some of those in between these interviews. But we've got uh, plenty coming up for you. Really interesting stuff. First of all, happy June, and I hope you all enjoyed your long Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, obviously a heartfelt salute to all of our folks in the military who have paid the ultimate price this is the time when we make a point of thinking about those people and remembering what they've done for us. So our interview today, we are bringing back Ernesto Omar Falcone from the EFF. He and uh, Haley Sukiyama, who we've also had on the show not that long ago, wrote an article about a California bill regarding broadband access. And there's really a lot to this, and, I, and I, I'm glad we finally brought someone to talk about it because there's a lot of history here. And how we got to where we are today was very interesting and very telling uh, and it kind of gives us some ideas of how we need to fix this going forward, because broadband access, which is, you know, high-speed internet access in this country, is really nowhere near where it should be. It's way too expensive. It doesn't go as fast as it should. It doesn't reach as many people as it should. And it's just, honestly, it's just required for modern-day uh, modern day life and even modern-day democracy. Um, I mean, just, and of course, that's now that we've been sheltering from home and many of us have been trying to work from home and learn from home, it really just exacerbated the whole situation and highlighted the areas where we've got such a digital divide between the people who, you know, have access to this and people who don't. So this interview will definitely get a little bit wonky in the sense that we're going to talk about, you know, politics and history here and how, and why why we got where we are. But it's really important to understand that because without understanding that, we really can't figure out how to go forward. And we are going to talk about some technical terms. We kind of throw some around. So I just want to, before we get into it, I want to kind of define or maybe remind us of what we mean when we say some of these things. Uh, we're talking about, you know, upload versus download speed. Like when you're at home and you have internet access, you know, today broadband as defined by the government is really abysmally, abys abysmally low. It's, it's really not considered broadband anymore, but that has a real impact on policy, which we're going to talk about today. But so first of all, when we talk about upload versus download speed, uh, if we think of the internet as being the cloud, that's a term that we all have heard now. So if we kind of think of the internet as a cloud, well, then upload would be something from you to the cloud up, like clouds are up, right? Um, and then download would be from the cloud to you. So most of us use download more than we use upload. So we're, you know, if we're watching a movie on Netflix or even just surfing the web, what we're doing is we're sending a request out to the web to send us something. And then most of the traffic is coming toward us, not away from us. So mo download speed tends to be the more important one for most people, which is why with classic services like DSL and, you know, digital, digital subscriber line, which runs over regular phone lines, uh, and even cable internet, uh, for the longest time has been asymmetrical, which is, which is to say that upload and download speeds are not the same. And it usually favors download over upload for that reason. But modern fiber, uh, is almost always symmetrical and it's much, much faster. Uh, if you've got fiber service, you've probably at least got 100 megabits up and 100 megabits down. And now let's talk about megabits. So uh, without getting too technical, we're going to talk about megabits and gigabits. And gigabits are basically 1,000 megabits. So if I have 100 megabit service, one gigabit service is 10 times faster than that. And today that's totally doable with fiber optic lines. Um, fiber optic lines are basically kind of glass cables that carry light. And on, we've figured out some really cool ways to send data across light waves. And it's really, really fast. And that's the future. And unfortunately, a lot of people in this 
country just don't have access to that, and the future of them getting access is pretty dim, pun intended. And with that set up, uh, let's not waste any more time. This is a fascinating discussion. Let's uh, dive into part one of our discussion with Ernesto Falcone about the battle to bring fiber to everybody in the United States. Ernesto Omar Falcone is Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation with a primary focus on intellectual property, open internet issues, broadband access, and competition policy. He represents EFF's advocacy on behalf of its members and all consumers for free and open internet before the state legislatures and Congress. Welcome back, Ernesto. Hey, thanks for having me. So I saw an article that you, were, that you had a byline on recently and, and that made me reach out to you. And with all this COVID stuff going on, this has just kind of come to the fore, even though it's been a lurking problem for a long time, and that's broadband access. And so I want to talk to you today about the kind of the state of things and, and go through a little bit of the history of how we got where we are today and where we hope we might be able to get to in the future with, with help from groups like the EFF. So let's start with what should be, should be an easy question, but it probably isn't. Uh, when we say broadband internet, what, what does that mean? Like, I, I know the government has its particular definition of this, and I'm sure internet service providers probably like to, you know, tweak that for their marketing purposes. But, you know, what qualifies as broadband? That's a great question. So, you know, legally, uh, from a federal matter, it, 25 megabits download, 3 megabits upload is what you would call broadband. I say in a more, and that definition was adopted maybe five plus years ago, right? I would say more practically speaking, you know, broadband should be thought about in terms of usefulness for the, the applications and services that exist today. You know, that's going to be in the probably 100 symmetrical range, maybe higher. And the network and the infrastructure of that is is fiber. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I would articulate broadband more along high speed access. Okay. Because I think all of our needs have grown and, and they're going to continue to grow. You know, most estimates are, you know, exponential growth of consumption will continue for the foreseeable future, as long as people keep inventing, you know, the next generation of applications and services. Sure. So you mentioned fiber specifically, and and, and yes, yeah, cer- certainly um, fiber seems to be kind of the future, or at least the the, the current king in terms of uh, speed. But there are definitely other things out there that we that you're in use today, especially in some maybe rural areas. So can you maybe just real quickly kind of enumerate the kind of common technologies that we use for broadband today? Yep, yep, and and there's a, a whole fun history to this. So, uh, we all know about we all you know if we think about our history, the telephone monopoly of AT and T, you know that's the bedrock of DSL today. Uh, whether it's from one of your a frontier of Verizon or AT and T or uh, a small company that that is less known that's selling you DSL, all of those stem from the exact same copper monopoly network that was built under the AT and T monopoly era. The Cable companies, there used to be hundreds of them, but now you know we have you know two or three big ones, uh, right. Comcast and Charter, and also Spectrum, and uh, and they are they operate under cable networks, but were originally cable television services, and now are effectively both cable TV and cable broadband. And then you have the kind of the new generation, 21st century stuff that that is purely fiber optics from the core of the internet straight to your household or straight to your business, and th- some of the telephone companies like AT&T have some fiber and Verizon as well, but there isn't a national uh, fiber company in America. The, it's it's mostly isolated plays in different regions, you know, a statewide company, a handful of local governments, uh, rural cooperatives, you know, kind of a whole smorgasbord of, of people uh, all trying to build what what is essentially gigabit Internet and multi gigabit Internet. 
And it, there's a satellite service too in some of the really remote areas. Is that still in use today? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and you know, then there's wireless. Uh, so you know, you have uh, wires that connect to towers, and then the tower kind of carries the rest of the data to you. So uh, there's a handful of wireless companies out there, like T-Mobile, for example. And then uh, you have satellite, which is pretty much you know a pretty terrible service in terms of uh, what you can get from that. SpaceX supposedly is launching a new service that's supposed to be better. I I think it probably will be better if they can pull it off, but it's certainly not going to be any sort of replacement for your wireline connections. Gotcha. But like, you know, for all the things that they're touting now with 5g, uh, wireless around, uh, around the horizon, I know they just opened up some more spectrum, I think for that, the, some of the speeds they are promising with that look awfully high. I'm sure some of that is under perfectly ideal conditions, but it, a lot of the trouble with having competition, my understanding in, in some of these areas is it costs money to lay fiber, to lay cable, to buy the, you know, right of way, put up poles in some places and things like that. You know, whereas with wireless, it just seems like you just kind of bypass all that. Is it, if is 5g going to make a lot of this other stuff just kind of obsolete? No, quite the opposite, actually. F- 5g, uh, if we're talking about high speed 5g, so, you know, the, the gigabit 5g and, and kind of the faster speeds of that nature, all of those towers can only reach a very short distance, you know, in the hundreds, if not thousand feet range. Mm. Um, and all of those towers, these kind of like mini micro towers, they're all need fiber connected to them in order to have a sufficient amount of, of resource to distribute amongst all the phones to, to deliver those kind of speeds. There's no real shortcut here uh, at the end of the day. You know, a 5G network, ironically, is actually probably 95% fiber. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. Okay, so now let's dig into some little bit of the politics here. So which federal agency or maybe agencies uh, govern the regulations around Internet access in the U.S.? And and I assume most of it's federal, but, you know, maybe what role, if any, do states and municipalities play in regulation? Well, so historically, it has it used to be kind of this multi-governmental process where your states and your cities and your federal government all played a different role in in pushing out the deployment of the of the communications infrastructure. Just take the fact that every single person has a telephone line, almost mm-hmm. every single person has a wireline telephone connection, and the coordination amongst the different levels of government to bring that about, you know, is mostly evaporated. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, what you have now is a federal government that thinks it has no role in mm-hmm. in in policy here. A a kind of a mixed bag of states some states are much more aggressive in pushing out uh access and uniform you know universality uh some states that have completely taken their hands off as well thinking uh it's best to be an unregulated market and and that will achieve the the goals they're looking for and uh same with cities you know some cities have a lot of power on their own to require build out obligations meaning uh if you build in my neighborhood you have to build to all neighborhoods uh is essentially through their franchise power some cities lost that from the states. The state legislatures kind of repealed those authorities uh, back in like 2005, 2006. This was at the advent of FiOS and and kind of the gift to Verizon and, and as a means <laughs> to encourage them to deploy. And uh, yeah, so you have a kind of a mixed range of options there. And then there's the cities I think that are kind of the superstars who just said, you know what, you're never you're never coming in my neighborhood. And so why don't I just build it ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why don't we just provide the infrastructure necessary to allow you know, kind of this 21st century commerce to, to flow forth. And, um, you know, you have a growing number of those cities, but they're definitely the minority of uh, the United States. So in the past, and I'm being a telecom software engineer, I've, you know, kind of run up against some of these things myself, some really kind of strange regulation laws. But 
I know that, that the FCC, I think in particular, has has a minor role to play in that they often have to license access to Spectrum. Now, I, I, that's usually wireless, but I, I would have to think there's also some sort of uh, thing with uh, maybe the broadband licensing as well, maybe to become a, a broadband provider. And sometimes they hold that over their head to to get them to do you know, minimum things. Um, like they used to do that with AT&T, right? Back in the day, and that's why we all have wireline phones, is the government said, okay, we'll let you do this, but if you're going to do this, then you've got to get this to everybody, right? Yeah, and the uh, the FCC, you know, under federal law, ha- has some pretty broad powers if it made a determination uh, through government inf- data collecting efforts uh, that broadband is not being sufficiently deployed to be uh, on track, which was a mandate the the Congress gave the FCC, you know, about 24 years ago, oh. uh, and accounting. And what you've had was uh, this administration. For the last three years saying, yeah, broadband's being deployed in a timely basis and the previous administration uh, finding that it wasn't. And so th- that finding is, is pretty important in terms of triggering the powers of the agency sure. to, do, to do something, because if it's found that it's insufficiently deployed, uh, it's a, it's, it has some some authority to begin taking efforts to remedy the, the deficiencies, wh- where are the deficiencies of where it's being deployed. And a big part of it, I think, is looking at. You know, where have networks been deployed by the same company uh, in terms of upgraded, and where have they not upgraded, particularly in the realm of, of fiber optics? So I, I know that like most of us remember, will remember this that are old enough, <laughs> like me, or remember that back in the uh, the long distance days that used to be a monopoly. I mean, AT and T had a mm-hmm. monopoly on everything, but when you know back when we used to pay per minute to make a phone call, you know, sometimes even outside your county. You know, there was somewhere along the line, someone got the idea, okay, we need we need competition here. And part of the problem was no other company could afford to lay all the, the backbone for that. So they've basically forced them, the government forced them to release their existing infrastructure to competition. And that's when we got the MCIs and some of these other companies that were doing long distance. Is there any, any kind of that dynamic going on with broadband? Virtually none. And you know what's funny about the MCI story there? I actually just finished reading uh, this great book called... Uh, the deal of a century, the the, the backstory of the AT and T breakup, and uh, I recommend anyone who's listening to this that wants, really wants to know, you know, what do people think about the wires that gave you the internet before the internet became a thing, before anyone even knew it yeah. existed? This book is a fantastic book written by you know one of the founders of the New America Foundation, and he was a is a reporter who basically interviewed hundreds of people, pulled together hundreds of court documents and proceedings, and kind of told the story. In the 80s, so like before before the commercial internet really kind of took off. And so you get this kind of worldview perspective of purely telecom, purely telephone communications fights. And the story of MCI, what's really, really amazing about them is that they, they effectively broke into the market to, to be competitive because of the monopoly hold AT&T had through mm-hmm. the assistance of the government. Mm-hmm. So they basically – AT&T or MCI had, a, had to trick the FCC to license them the right <laughs> – to sell what they were saying was local calls, but in reality was this kind of uh, merger of local and distance calling huh. through microwave se- microwave ta- towers, wireless towers between cities, which effectively replicated the long distance system. And once the cat out was out of the bag and people said, <laughs> oh my gosh, I can buy this long distance service for way cheaper than the, from this AT&T company, then, you know, then, they, then they started moving into shared access because at that point, competition started taking root. People started seeing the benefits, uh, but up until that point, you know, the government was was fully on board with regular monopoly as the approach and competition was destructive to the communications industry. So 
Yeah, I, that that was effectively, you know, the first step was breaking up the monopoly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second step was once you, you know, once you created a handful of regional monopolies, the problem was you had a handful of regional monopolies. So <laughs> right. you still had the barriers of, of entry of uh, it's really expensive to build a whole new set of infrastructure on top of these companies who already exist, who already have all the customers. And and the solution to that was infrastructure sharing, you know, eliminate the barrier force them to share the infrastructure that denies them the power of their monopoly. Right. And that, that generated probably the most competitive market we've had in telecom ever since, you know, we had uh, an era. This is the advent of DSL broadband becoming a thing. Uh, you had, you know, I remember there's a, a book that talks about the ISP directory and which is, you know, between dial up and DSL services, you know, you had thousands of choices, you know, many markets have four or five broadband options. Mm. And you know all of that, all of that kind of stemmed forth from from the late '90s uh, or into the early 2000s. I remember that because as, as a software engineer, I was uh, working on North American cellular products at the time with Nortel, and we always referred to the 1984 DOJ ruling, which is when I believe is that mm-hmm. that's, that was really that broke that's right. broke Ma Bell. We always called it Ma yep. Bell because it was just the one <laughs> into all the baby bells, and you know some of us remember Pac Bell and Southwestern Southwestern Bell. I, anyway, there there were all those like seven or so baby bells. That's right. And, uh, and then the, the, when the long distance thing was coming into play, when I was kind of doing this mid nineties, I had to implement some cellular feature that required us to deliver a phone call long distance because there was some sort of a contractual agreement where even though we knew the the subscriber wasn't actually turned on in that foreign city, you had to deliver anyway to get the surcharges. Anyway, it was it was crazy. Lots of reg- <laughs> lots of regulation. I remember that well. Okay, so you kind of alluded to this before, where the government is supposedly gathering and collecting statistics on how Americans are being served with uh, their very light, outdated, outdated definition of uh, broadband. So what do we know from that? Maybe from either the government or probably from private investigations as well. What what areas of the U.S. are perhaps, uh, perhaps underserved? And like, what are the associated demographics with that? I assume there's a trend. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So um, so in EFF's research, you know, we're focused on uh, 21st century ready access. So, you know, you know, effectively in the 100 megabits and plus range, you know, what it, what is going to get you to the gigabit era, what's going to get you into the multi-gigabit era. And when you start looking at past 100 symmetrical, and it's a really important number because once you're at that point, you no longer have any infrastructure. So the old cable networks, the old cable networks, mm. you have none of those no longer are able, able to produce that type of, of bandwidth. And so you start discounting where where the legacy networks are uh, that are no longer being upgraded. And the picture is pretty bad. I mean, the picture is, you know, I'd say a third of the country has uh, pr- you know, at least two options of high-speed access. You know, the, the next third down has a monopoly, uh, which is cable. And in the last third, when the last third really constitutes uh, low-income neighborhoods and urban markets and rural, rural, rural people, uh, and and really uh, least the least densely populated parts mm-hmm. of the country, uh, they either have a a capable monopoly or nothing, and that is you know kind of I think the definition of failure in our telecom policies that you know as of for the last 15 years we've been operating on this premise that telephone companies will continue to upgrade their networks to keep up with cable. Mm. Instead, what's happened is they've all gone into wireless. They all care about 5G, which is not a competitor to cable. In fact, cable companies intend to sell capacity to the wireless companies <laughs> to make 5G happen because they, they don't have their own fiber everywhere. And and so that is that is the trend of broadband access as consumption rises, is a return to monopolization. It'll just be a, a, a handful of monopolies instead of one. 
So, yeah, so it's interesting. I haven't really thought about that in terms, but obviously from the government's perspective, if they define broadband as 25 down, 3 up, or whatever yep. it was you said, that does still allow cable companies and DSL companies to be part of that picture. But if they if they That's rebrand exactly that right. as 100 by 100, they're out. Like, they can't even be considered broadband anymore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's the reason why the 25-3 standard, you know, it's so outdated. Uh, and, you know, what EFF has suggested to, to, the, to the federal government is you're not no longer adopting metrics based on, like, let's just pick a hard number and stick with it, but rather take an assessment of how much consumption is happening based on the services and mm -hmm. applications that have been launched. And and you can you can do the math. You can look at that and say, OK, what's what's a broadband connection that is sufficient to handle that level of consumption? You know, people are on average, I think, are consuming, you know, and it's changed with COVID-19, of course. Sure. Yeah. But but, you know, two to three hundred gigabits per month is is kind of the high speed access consumption. And, and, I, and for the most part, I think most estimates of the total Internet consumption of 2020 has already been met today. You know, <laughs> wow. We've already passed that. So. You know, these all sound like big, scary numbers, except for the fact that, you know, fiber optics as a capacity, you know, has hundreds, if not thousands of thousands times capacity remaining that's unused still. And so, yes, consumption will continue to increase on a double digit range, but it will take a long, long time before any sort of fiber network will feel the strain. That's what we're learning right now with COVID-19 is anyone who, who's on a legacy network trying to do remote education, uh, distance learning. Uh, telehealth, remote work, all uh, simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. All those networks are, are bogging down. They're 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 slowing down because they're not designed to handle all of those high needs simultaneously. Whereas any fiber network is is barely even sweating it. Yeah, I remember that actually. I, I did a brief stint working at Lucent, working on optical technology for about eighteen months, and we were. I remember the comments even back then being that you know we've got tons of fiber and most of it's dark is what is the way they, is the way they would put it, meaning it's basically yeah, underutilized. And fiber is just amazing technology. I remember as I was doing it, they had what uh, wave division multiplexing, which is basically sending, you know, not just one yep. color of light, but many colors of light down the same pipe, basically, so you could get even more. It was it was pretty fascinating. Well, and, and Alcatel Lucent deserves an enormous amount of credit for for making for that type of innovation because that that is what really converted a lot of the original municipal gigabit networks into 10 gigabit networks hmm. um, was simply Alcatel Lutzen's uh, multi-wave uh, multi technology that basically allowed them to use the exact same wires and just make 10 times more right. use of the, the capacity that already existed. So uh, this isn't why you're here, but this is why you, you came on last time. So you talked about you know the, uh, how the cable company said they were going to do this and they didn't do it. Uh, and I know one of the things was net neutrality. And one of the things that they said was going to happen when we defeated net neutrality is that would allow them to make all these investments and, and whatnot. And that's been a couple of years ago since we basically lost that battle. Have they done what they said they were going to do? Yeah, I mean, you look at the, you know, the companies, I mean, for cable companies to upgrade uh, to the gigabit era, which they did about a year ago, um, it's actually a fraction of the cost because the, the coaxial cable line is, is already a higher capacity line than your copper DSL line. Hmm. So they actually have less, they have, they have to spend less to upgrade just enough to get to that, that speed. They're not symmetrical services, right? They have a pretty slow upload speed in comparison to the, you know, the 900 to 1000 megabits per second download speed. But it's still a, a decent connection. The problem is the the frontiers, AT&Ts, and Verizon's of the world have all of the, have all basically have abandoned fiber, and so all of them are you know, and frontiers going bankrupt. You know, mm -hmm. they've announced their bankruptcy, and their bankruptcy is really indicative of um, of all of their business practices. Uh, because what what I've learned 
kind of researching this fundamental question of like, you know, a few years ago, I looked at Fios and I say, why did Fios stop? If fiber is de deploying 10 gigabit networks, and this is before cable even had gigabit networks uh, in terms of downloads, at least I'm like if fiber is already doing this now and they're already now doing 10, you know, many, many times what cable can do. Well, why isn't Verizon building this everywhere mm. and just eating up the market yeah. left and right on these companies? And what the answer to that is the big national publicly traded companies and the way investors and Wall Street and, and the whole dynamic works is they cannot justify to their investors a 10-year investment structure of, of spending a bunch of money to build fiber that's going to take 10 years to recover their investment, mm. despite the fact that year 11 onwards, a great many places in this country, they will be making a fortune. Huh. You know, it's profits now, not profits later. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the formulas they apply, like the amount of profit they have to make by within one year, quarterly reporting, dividends and all that, they just they're just not equipped as, as financial structures to do fiber, uh, which is why they don't do it. You know, the moment AT&T's mandate from the government to build fiber ended, they, they stopped. And, you know, juxtapose that, you know, I think it's something really important for your listeners to hear and to think through. You know, juxtapose that to how investors and the financial markets treat mergers and acquisitions, mm. right? There's companies merge all the time. And there's yeah. a reason for that is a bunch of money is handed to these companies to do it you know, with, with the blessing of, of financiers. And AT&T today is $150 billion in debt from all of its mergers since DirecTV and oh, wow. HBO and all that, which is an estimated twice as much money it would have cost for them to give every single AT&T customer a fiber optic <laughs> gigabit line. So it's kind of like they obviously have the money. Yeah. They obviously have the capacity to spend. But the priorities have always been on short turnaround, short term profits and gains, which has driven all of the money that they do get access to towards mergers and acquisitions. And you know, you look at the genius of buying DirecTV, it doesn't seem so it's a smart idea anymore. You know, people are leaving <laughs> DirecTV by by the hundreds of thousands. Right. So, you know, it, just because it's a private company doing it doesn't mean it's the it's the smartest player in the in the in the mech, in the machinery here. <laughs> For sure. All right, so and that may segue perfectly, sadly, into the next question. And that is, how does how does broadband in the United States compare to other developed nations in terms of, you know, available speeds, uh, cost, and accessibility? How how do how do we stack up? So we're definitely losing in a lot of places, you know, because because the way I measure it is, you know, how much fiber is available to people, knowing the future potential availability, you know, the next the next set of Akatel Lucent type of innovations that are coming, and the fact that the if the infrastructure is already laid. Uh, they can make immediate use of those of those advancements, as long as they have fiber to home and fiber to business. Uh, I would say you know, it's about a, about a dozen EU nations that are have twice as much fiber to home as the United States, hmm. Spain, for example, and you know, and in France and, and a few others. Actually, I have to double check France. France, I think, is on its way ahead of us. And and the reason I say that is they recently basically just required their telecos to just transition to fiber, you know, hmm. just as a, as a matter of policy. And so you, you see a, a pretty active hand of, of government from an infrastructure planning perspective, you know, requiring transition or, or, or establishing the set of rules that allow someone else to build it, you know, namely like open access fiber companies. China and, you know, we go to Asia, um, South Korea has already done. They've already done 100% fiber. They've, they finished years wow. ago. And for them, it has, you know, we did, a, EFF did this report on analyzing South Korea and why is it number one in the world? Because uh, a lot of people, I think, understand, you know, they have some pretty amazing broadband access over there. 
And uh, it's it is basically you know three or four decades of five or six different infrastructure plans from the government uh, focused on universality and getting it all built in order to allow you know the handful of niche corporations that exist in the co- the country uh, to be competitive globally, as as well as you know giving their citizens as much um, you know as many advantages as they can can figure out. And so you know the last big fiber policy decision South Korea has done was you know going back to our talk about the '90s mandating fiber sharing amongst all their wireline companies mm. with their wireless companies uh you know what has that done that has effectively allowed every company selling 5g to instantly have access to all of the foundational infrastructure they need everywhere uh so all of them are automatically able to launch national 5g products you know they've got five or six million people on 5g services now wow you know in a, in a matter of months because it wasn't it wasn't in in the and it's important because what people may not understand is you're not going to have a company, several companies build independent fiber lines or independent fiber networks in the same market because right. of the upfront cost. Right, yeah. You know, I mentioned, I mentioned it takes 10 years on average, but that's, that's 10 years if it's a fiber network in isolation. If you had two or three of them fighting out on the same spot <laughs> um, in many parts of the country, it, it suddenly becomes like, a, it sort of becomes t- 20 years and 30 years mm. because they can't capture enough of the payers into the, to the network to, to, to recover. This is why sharing is really important because there isn't actually a good reason to have – there isn't like a good policy reason to have multiple extremely high-capacity networks that will both be fully underutilized. Right. You know, if, you're, if your goal is to, to ensure it gets everywhere uh, and, and that your challenging markets are not barriers to building out. You know, and then uh, you know, the other countries, uh, Japan, and the, the biggest player in the room is China. China has been uh, – they have their own infrastructure plan that's been in motion for, for years. I think broadband now is a group that does these types of studies. You know, they found that United States and China were at parity about eight years ago. Hmm. And since then, since the, you know, the initiation of their infrastructure work, um, they've been building fiber to the home and fiber to the business nine times faster than the United States. Oh, wow. So they will be 2023, 2024. They'll have universal fiber for a billion people. And, and the ramifications of that is, is pretty severe in that, you know, Silicon Valley isn't guaranteed to the United States, right? The next center of, of innovators and computer scientists and folks who come up with these kind of the killer apps of the internet, they're going to go where the field is most most ripe to to experiment. And and you know, China has every intent to try and create a space for them to to capture their you know their business activity and economic activity. Yeah, and I and I think that brings up the the, the analogy that I really like to think about when you, the, this is this is infrastructure. This is national infrastructure, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later in terms of what that might mean policy wise here. But I mean, it sounds like the, basically what you're saying is the government, some of these other governments. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, and maybe you can answer if it's strictly government based or if it's pr- pr- public private partnership kind of thing. But they have made a. Uh, a point of expanding this stuff because they realized just like highways were to us, right? When we laid out the highway system that really enabled us as a country to grow very fast and probably fueled the industrial revolution. And, and so this is the same kind of digital infrastructure that kind of is analogous to that. Wouldn't you say? Yes, I would say that's right. And we'll wrap it up there and we'll get into that topic when we come back for part two next week. Big thanks to Ernesto Falcone for coming back. I always enjoy having him on the show. And we've got one more episode where we're going to talk some more to him. And it's it's really important. We're going to talk about, you know, what we do now, what's going on right now, and some solutions, some really actually clever solutions, I think, that kind of, you know, bridge the gap between, you know, public efforts, you know, governmental efforts and private efforts from from corporations. I, we kind of struggle with that in this country, where, you know, where the responsibilities lie. And we're going to talk about some solutions that actually kind of 
merge those two, a hybrid solutions that I think uh, are very viable. So tune in next week for that. In the coming weeks, I've got several interviews coming up. We're going to be talking with Adam Levin and uh, Edward Goodman. I hope I got the hopefully I got the name right from CyberScout. We've talked to Adam Levin before. He's a book called uh, wrote a book called Swipe about identity theft, and we're going to bring him back on. We're going to talk about some some security and privacy stuff related to COVID nineteen. Always a hot topic. And then we're going to bring on Renee Dudley from ProPublica to talk about. I mentioned this a little while ago. Some kind of modern ransomware varieties that are extortion based. Um, it's kind of a new trend that's very disturbing. Uh, so we got some other great interviews coming up. Stay tuned for those. And of course, if you don't want to miss them, then just go to wherever your favorite outlet is for podcasts and subscribe. And that way you'll automatically get all the episodes downloaded to your device. While you're there, if you have not already, please uh, think about leaving a, a nice review. Uh, even if you just throw some stars on there without any words, that's just fine. Um, I've already got some, but it's always good to have more, and it's always good to have some recent ones. So um, if you haven't done that, I would love it if you would go do that. I would very much appreciate that. All right, that'll do it this week. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in again next week for part two of our really fascinating interview with Ernesto Falcone. And as we're starting to reopen the country, it's even more important that we stay safe. And you don't have to go out, really, if you really don't need to. But if you do, you know, keep that social distancing, keep that mask on, and respect others. So until next week, everybody, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.